Hello, my name is Mishi Iman, and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of being joined by author Kevin Sullivan. Kevin is a writer of history and true crime, the author of 16 books, a former investigative journalist, and also a former minister, like a priest, (laughs) and is now a true crime author. And he's a recognized authority on Ted Bundy. Portions of his biographies on Ted Bundy also appear in the college textbook, Abnormal Psychology, Clinical Perspective on Psychological Disorders. He has written, I think he's on his seventh book on Ted Bundy. Uh, The book that I used for this podcast was The Bundy Murders, which honestly was a treasure trove of information. The back of the book gave me a lot of resources to then do deeper dives and other books to use. He also has written The Trail of Ted Bundy, The Encyclopedia of the Ted Bundy Murders, The Bundy Secrets, Ted Bundy's Murderous Mysteries, and The Enigma of Ted Bundy. (laughs) So if you want more on this stupid bitch Ted Bundy, please go check out Kevin Sullivan. I will put links of where to find him in the description. Additionally, this is part one of two of my interview with Kevin. So if you would like part two, please head over to the Patreon, True Crime Aficionados. If you want more content, if you just wanna support this black one woman show, please head over to the Patreon. Again, link in the description. And so now without further ado, my interview with author Kevin Sullivan. Okay. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm Misha. Nice to virtually meet you. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm Kevin Sullivan. So glad that you contacted me. I'm happy to be on your program today. Oh, I'm very, very, very excited. I was telling uh, my partner, I was like, someone else who knows more about Ted Bundy than me, I can finally <laughs> talk to. Um, <laughs> so how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, yeah. r- really hot here. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. It's very hot, but it's really hot out in the Northwest. I mean, today, summers in Louisville are always around in their 90s, so we're kind of used to it. But it, you look up Louisville in the in the Wikipedia, it says the weather in the summer is subtropical. But they're really <laughs> getting blasted out in the Pacific Northwest. I think Portland had 107. It was all it's awful, but oh, just no. hot. Where where are you located? Um, I'm in New Jersey at the moment. Oh, okay. It's uh, is it is it hot there? Or is it pretty normal? Is, it is, is also it... very very hot. It's ninety, oh. but it feels like ninety seven, and the humidity oh. is like pushing sixty percent at this point. Yeah, well, the humidity will really r- really do it. Yeah. Yeah. So before the interview, I like turned my AC on really 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 high. So then when I yeah. turned it off to record, it's still like nice and cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. Um, this is so exciting. So, um, so just to let you know, the book, the book that I read of yours was the Bundy murders. I have Uh notes and this was officially the second out of 11 books that I read about Ted Bundy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The first one being, you know, the stranger beside me, cause that's like, Uh read the stranger beside me. Oh yeah. Your book. I was like, what, what? Mm -hmm. There were so many details about his life about his crimes the Mm -hmm. impetus for his murders that i did not glean from anywhere else right yeah that's true i've been told uh, yeah i've been told that by a lot of people and i can kind of give you as later the backstory on that but there was a reason for that yeah yeah so thank you just for you writing your books Mm -hmm. um your thank you your six books about (laughs) six books about ted bundy yeah, actually, yeah, and that's uh, over fourteen hundred pages. I'm actually doing another book now because I have been contacted. Yeah, um, thank God I never have to write the biography of Bundy again. If you, it, since you've read the Bundy murders, you know that that's the full biography, a full treatment of the murders. But I have so many people contact me over the years, and they keep contacting me, and not everybody that contacts me has had an encounter with Ted Bundy or what have you, but. A number of them do. And it's interesting, the information that comes forward. So I always like to put that in print form and talk about the case. And in all my books, I don't go over ground that I've already covered. I always try to go over new ground and go in depth on certain aspects of the case or aspects of the record. And so, yes, I never dreamed I would, first of all, ever write a book on Bundy, period. 
But after the Bundy murders was published in 2009, I wouldn't write another book uh, on Bundy until 2015 when a couple of the people, one of the players of the case had passed away. And then, and then I, uh, another one was very ill. And I thought if I'm ever going to write what I call the companion volume to it, um, I should do it now. And so I did. And I, just like the Bundy murders, I found a lot of new information that had never come to light. And that was published. It was a trail of Ted Bundy digging up the untold stories in 2016. And then it just led from there. So here I am on my seventh book and I've got new information, uh, people that I have validated and we'll be talking about, I'll be writing about what they told me about their, their involvement in it. And these were uh, people that were nearly uh, captured by him and some other, just some very interesting aspects of the case. But to get back to how this even happened with me, yes. I never had, I never had any intention of writing about Ted Bundy. What happened was a friend of mine who has now passed away, uh, Jim Massey, who was a probation and parole officer here in Louisville, Kentucky for, you know, like, well, by the time he retired, he had been there 30 years. I met Jim many, many years ago. And he, uh, I remember, I remember him telling me that he had become friends with a fellow out of Utah by the name of Jerry Thompson. He was a retired detective. He happened to be the lead detective in the Bundy case for Utah. And so what happened was we, we would talk about the case. I, I was already writing uh, books. I'd written one book, a personality study on the uh, American General George Armstrong Custer. And I was uh, also writing a lot, of, a, a lot about true crime cases, murders here in Kentucky and the surrounding area. And I got a call from Jim one day and he said, uh, Jerry and Gene Thompson are coming to Louisville. Would you like to have dinner? And I said, great. Sure, that's great. And I was already aware that, uh, and the story goes, as Bundy was uh, sent to prison in Utah, we can expand this later, but he was then transferred to Colorado to stand trial for the murder of Karen Campbell. <clears throat> Uh, in that state, she was a nurse from Michigan that came with her, uh, her boyfriend, Dr. Raymond Godowski, and his two children. And she was abducted by Bundy from the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass, which is a stone's throw from Aspen. It's all right there. And he escaped from Colorado, not once, but twice. And the second time, <laughs> he made his way to Florida, and he murdered there and then was ultimately captured and put to death there. But... When Bundy was arrested in Utah in August of 1975, he lost what is known as his murder kit, his kill kit. And that was a kit that contained, it was a, a brown satchel. It contained um, uh, uh, a ski mask, a pantyhose mask, crowbar, handcuffs, two right-handed gloves of different styles, uh, which he used those for dragging bodies. He was left-handed, but he apparently dragged the bodies with his right hand. Shoulder problem, I don't know, but that's what he did. Glad bags, ice pick. We don't exactly know why he carried that, but he had that in there. Rope, and he carried an electrical cord, uh, like torn out from a lamp for choking. Anyway, I knew Jerry Thompson had this murder kit. He had it. But when he was, when Jim told me he was coming to Louisville, I didn't know he was going to bring it, but he brought the kit. Uh, Jim called me on a Sunday night and said, uh, the Thompsons are here. We're going to have dinner at such and such a restaurant. I said, okay, I'll meet you at 630. I was about to say goodbye. And Jim said he brought the bag. And I said, what bag? He said, the bag Bundy carried. So I said, well, let me meet you at the restaurant a few minutes early. Let me look at this stuff. And, 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 and I did, it was surreal. After we had dinner, we went back to the, uh, uh, Breckenridge Inn where the Thompsons were staying and Jerry and Jim and I sat around the pool and I interviewed him for a couple of hours at the time I was not on staff but I was writing I was submitting articles for a local newspaper a print newspaper here in Louisville called Snitch which was all about crime and they also were published in Lexington and four or five other states and um, I thought well I'll write a, a nice article about this and so when Jerry came to Louisville and we, I got to see the bag. He turned it over to Jim for the couple of days, few days that they were here. And I called Jim one night. I said, do you mind if I bring that stuff over to my house and photograph it? And he said, sure, that's fine. 
And so I, I went and picked it up. It was so surreal having that murder kit in my car. I was driving it home from Jim's house. I called my wife on my cell phone. I said, honey, I don't think there's anything on the dining room table, but if there is, please just clear it off. I'm bringing Ted Bundy's murder kit into the house. Crazy. She wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> yeah, I said, I'm, I'm, bringing, I'm bringing it into the house. Now listen, this is so cool because it was just odd. I am uh, driving home and I look at the passenger seat and as I, it's dark and I'm going under street lamps like every block or whatever. And it, it would bathe, it would, it would bathe the thing in an eerie light and, and you could see it. And I thought, here I am with Ted Bundy's murder kit driving through a neighborhood, much like he did 30 years ago. And there's no detective with me. There's no museum curator with me, but this is his actual murder kit. And so I brought it home. I, I photographed it. Those color photographs I released years ago. I mean, a lot of the books have republished them and I've, I've given the okay to do that. Those ones I've taken, there's an official 1975 black and white, but there's also these color photographs out there Yeah. that, uh, so anyway, uh, but before Jerry left, he gave me and he gave Jim one of the glad trash bags from Bundy's car. <laughs> and this was so this was so I thought it was great. This was so surreal. My wife didn't like it. This was so surreal, though, because it, it, this is what caused me to write the book. It really wasn't meeting Jerry. It was having that garbage bag in my house, reading about the case now that there was an interest and having interviewed Jerry Thompson, which that article was published in Snitch. And um, it just kept, I thought, I'm going to write about Bundy. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do it. So I told my friend Jimmy, he said, you know, there's been a lot of books published by him. He's been done to death. I'd do something else. I said, no, I'm, I got, sometimes you got to go with what you know. And yep. so I did that. And here's what was, was really cool. Halfway through the book. Halfway through the book. Mm-hmm. I'm discovering things about some of the murders that have never come to light before. And a lot of new information about the case, just yeah. general information too. And so I knew I had something special on my hands. I thought I'd be able to write a book that would, you know, go well with the rest of the Bundy canon as it were. But, but I thought I, I didn't know that we're going to have something that would really stand out, but it ended up standing out. And um, so you know, most people love the book. Most people tell me about how much information there's in there. They've had their, I've had people contact me, said I've had to read the book three times just to take it all in. Yes. And, uh, and there's just, and I did that intentionally. I crammed it with information, but it was discovering this new stuff. That, In fact, a friend of mine who knows Stephen Michaud, he had lunch with him one day and they got to talking about my book. And Michaud said, there are things in his book that even I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, it just goes to show you if you keep digging the things that you can find out. And also, most of the Bundy books were published, um, you know, like, you know, while Bundy was still alive or like yeah. Michelle's book was and The Stranger Beside. All these books came out when 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 he was alive. And then there really hadn't been many books published after his death. Uh, you know, um, his lawyer published one and and uh, Dr. Lewis published one. But there wasn't any really there. there he, he didn't have any other biographers. This one came uh, out it, after he died, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was that came out 20 years after his death. And so and and now we're we're way past that because the book was published in 2009. But People recognized it. And, um, you know, after it got going, nobody really knew who I was in the field of true crime. Uh, they knew me a little bit from my custom book, but nobody knew who I was when the book came out. But as people began reading it and seeing what was there, and of course, as the years rolled on, I mean, the book's always been a good seller for me. And then people started contacting me uh, from um, uh, documentary companies in the UK, in the nice. US. They started contacting me in 2017. Uh, every documentary company that I talked to either had the book already. 99% of them already had the Bundy murders. And they were asking me questions about it. Some of them had me on their shows and or or they had ordered the book and it was on their way. That's so, cool. uh, so, yeah, so I've done a lot of the, 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 the guy that shot the, the Netflix doc also asked me to do it. But he asked me late and I couldn't I couldn't get it done. And so I had to miss that one, but I've done a lot of, you know, Bundy docs, but it is true 
that I was able to find out a lot of new information about the murders, and all of this is verified. In fact, I didn't even have an agent, but when I submitted um, uh, some sample ch- a query letter and some uh, and uh, maybe a sample chapter or two to like six different publishers, yeah. I immediately got a response from McFarland and and within a few weeks I signed with them and then I got and then another acquisition editor called me and said, Good, I'd like to just get a verbal okay from you. We'd like to sign you on the book. Um, and I said, oh, I can't because I've already signed with McFarland, but which was fine with me. I mean, they're a great publishing company, but, uh, but all that was without an agent. And so I asked the acquisitions editor, I said, what was it about my book that even since I didn't have an agent, what, what was yeah. it about my book that you liked that you, that, that made you want to offer a contract so quickly? He said it was, the, it was the amount of detail. He said, I, I like your mm-hmm. writing style, but it was also the amount of detail and this new stuff and how you backed it all up with documentation and quotes from the detectives that you interviewed. So it's just real interesting stuff that went on. So I was very happy to have written the book. It's not a book I would want to write again because it was <laughs> a very, it really, it was a very, very dark time going into oh the God. murders and the detail that I had to. And really it was a two and a half year sprint. In fact, I've never written another book like I wrote The Bundy Murders. I, I, I worked on that book seven days a week in the morning, in the night, middle of the night. I'd get sleep. I'd take my wife out to dinner. When she came home from work, I'd get a call from a detective or somebody else, and I'd take the call. We'd spend, go home and watch some movies or whatever, a, a movie or something. I'd get back into my office, and I'm going to start working again. So it was around the clock of the clock thing. And it took a lot out of me, but boy, when I was finished two and a half years later, I was so glad to release that to the publisher and be done with it. And uh, it was it was draining, really draining. So I told my wife, yeah. I said, you know, I've cheated you of a lot of time. I said, but I'm never going to write a book quite like that again. I'm going to space myself. And uh, she said, well, that would be good. And uh, she was all on board for that. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm glad I'm glad I did it. And uh like I say, it's uh, gotten good reviews. In fact, the second edition just came back, uh, just came out in April of 2020. That's so a little over a year ago. Yes, good. And in fact, uh, Booklist gave it a great review and uh, talked about how accurate it was and in-depth and fast-paced and, uh, and is a, a, just a real great addition to the uh, existing, you know, Bundy canon. So, I mean, I'm, I've always been pleased with it. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy it's all done. It's a wrap. <laughs> but I agree. So I've read for the podcast is a true crime book club podcast, a bit of a mouthful, uh-huh. but each season mm-hmm. I take a deep dive into a specific case or individual. And I try to read mm-hmm. all of the literature I can that's relevant because a lot of it is mm-hmm. mundane and repetitive. And mm-hmm. your book was the second one. And then your bibliography gave me kind of mm-hmm. a guide for the other mm-hmm. books that I should pick up. And right. I remember taking many pickleback shots while reading your book, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> unlike mm-hmm. any of the other ones, because your book is where I first discovered the necrophilia. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, when I got into the river man, then Dr. Keppel also mm-hmm. discussed it, who he just passed yes. uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was really really sad to hear that because yeah. Bob helped me a lot. Yeah. I, I worked with him on, on the book as well as all the other main detectives. And it was sad to see him go. Jerry Thompson is also gone too. Yeah. I think Jerry, Jerry died in 2019 and he was the lead detective out of Utah. Yeah. Dr. Al Carl Alves. He passed too, 2020. Yeah, he sure did. And yeah, um, yeah Al and I kept up, up with each other. We'd send each other signed books of our newest book to, to be released. That's and so Al was a great, I was a, I was a great guy. And he looked like to me, he was in the peak of health. And um, I spoke to his publisher and uh, he said, yeah, Al and I had just been in, uh, up uh, in New York. And he said, Al was bounding up these steps faster than I could get up them. <laughs> so he looked, it was very odd, but yeah, it did, but, but he died. And uh, so a lot of these people are starting to go. Yeah. And so the primary, primary sources, thank God we have a lot of the documentation, yes. but the primary sources, and there's a lot that comes out from these detectives that uh, aren't necessarily in the record. There's these little things that they, they come out and say, they had Bundy said this, Bundy said that. Like Jerry Thompson told me, he said, Bundy would call me up and harangue me um, <laughs> all the time. 
you know, and I would always ask because he was helping to defend himself in Utah. Yeah. And uh, and he said, every time he called, I'd say, well, what about Debbie? Meaning Debbie Kent, because De- Debbie Kent's, of course, the girl that yeah. he, when he when Carol Durant got away, he drove up to, to Balafel. He had this brochure uh, of the play, The Redhead, going on at the at the at, at the at the Balafel High School, which is buried in a nice suburban neighborhood. Nobody knew exactly where it was. And he went up there and he and he was able to abduct Deborah Kent. So, you know, he'd say, I'd ask about Debbie. Ask about, and I used a quote from 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 Jerry in my book, The Bundy Murders, about that. But, but when I interviewed Jerry and uh, I, for my um, sixth book, The Enigma of, of Ted Bundy, I actually transcribed my interviews with Jerry mm-hmm. and with um, uh, Ron Holmes, a criminologist from Louisville that worked with Bundy, and um, and also uh, D- Detective Don Patchen, lead detective yeah. for the Tallahassee PD in Florida. And I had forgotten until I transcribed these that uh, that, Jerry, that Jerry said he was always, every time Bundy called him, he would always throw it up in his face. It, Bundy would say, I have a conscience. He said, well, if you have a conscience, oh tell me about Debbie. And then they would go back and forth with that. And Bundy would either laugh or say something else. And, but these are very interesting things. So, it, it, But in any event, a lot of them are kind of passing away now. Mike Fisher, thank God, the Colorado investigator, he's still in good shape. I, uh, I, I haven't talked to Mike in in many years, but I, but I've emailed him and stuff like that. And uh, I have a friend who knows him well, and um, he's doing okay. Good. And good. so on. a number of them are, but but a number of them have passed away, and that's sad. Yeah, your book gave me a special like affinity for Mike Fisher. He just seems like mm-hmm. a really funny, like no mm-hmm. bullshit kind of dude. <laughs> no, that's right. He's exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah. That came across. Hmm. And I'm telling you, he he wasn't going to let. Well, and Mike was the first person to get a murder warrant placed against you know Bundy. Wow! And it was it was not easy doing it. Um, when you when when Utah arrested Bundy and they found out that he was the one that had, they believed he was the one that abducted um, uh, Carol Durant. Mm-hmm. The the first the two charges he got were kidnapping and attempted murder. The judge said, you, you're going to have to drop the attempted murder because even though, you know, he probably would have killed there's no proof that he would have yeah. killed him. You don't know that, but they, but they got him and he was convicted on that, uh, that kidnapping charge of her, but they couldn't even get a murder thing. But Fisher was really working overtime and he finally got that, uh, he had gathered enough circumstantial evidence placing Bundy near the scene of when she, and, and on the day that she disappeared, he had having gotten gas. It was his gas receipts that uh, that uh, he he was in trial in Colorado for the murder of Karen Campbell. Now, technically, he may have gotten off. If boy, you just think of this, if he yeah. wouldn't have gotten if he would have gotten off of that, they'd have transferred him back to the Utah State Prison, and he had another about thirteen and a half years to do. He got a he, he got a uh, one to 15 sen- sentence, so one to 15 mm-hmm. years. Knowing what he had done, I doubt, he, I'm sure he would have completed the full sentence. But just think, what would have happened if he wouldn't have escaped there and then gone to Florida and killed again and he was executed? If he'd have yeah. beat the charge in Colorado, which he may have, he'd have just done his time in Utah. Mm-hmm. What would he have done? Gone back to Washington State? Would he have killed again? Likely, but he probably would have gone home by that time. Who knows? It could have been a different story, but of course, Colorado let him go not once, but twice. Twice, twice. That's the twice. Yeah. Look at his Wikipedia page. It says escapes with an S, and that is yes, outrageous that this individual was able to escape two times. (laughs) Well, well, listen to know the nature of Bundy when. When Bundy was transferred to the Pitkin County Courthouse, which was already over 100 years old at the time in 1977, uh, um, when he was tran- uh, transferred there, um, he immediately turned on the charm. Yep. And what, what happened was they were warned 
Jerry Thompson warned them. Mike Fisher warned them. This guy mm-hmm. is on trial for murder here of Karen Campbell. He's suspected of killing many more in the Seattle area, the Washington State area, Oregon, uh, Utah. So this guy's a killer. Yep. Well, what did he become to them? He became Ted. <laughs> and in the interview, I'd forgotten all this, but in the interview, <laughs> Of, of Thompson, which I transcribed for the Enigma of Ted Bundy, this last book. He talks about that. Jerry said we kept warning them and and that he's going to get loose and kill somebody. He said, you know, Jerry said, he told him, I don't normally have my, I don't wear my service weapon into the court when I come over there. He said, but I think I'm going to start doing it. Wow. Meaning, meaning yeah. you guys aren't watching him. And he said, you're not watching him. You let him go to the Coke machine, which is on another floor. You let him do this and that. And, and here's what they said. Well, look, we could make him a, uh, uh, you know, a, um, a, a trustee. We could make him a trustee. It wouldn't matter. He's not going to do anything. He just, Ted's not going to do anything. Ridiculous. So what did he do one day? He jumped out of the, Third third floor window. Well, it's actually two and a half. It's 25 feet. Uh, the building rises a half a floor out from the basement. And so it's about 25 feet. Technically, it's the second floor, but it's really 25 feet. And so he, he hits the ground, injures his knee a little bit, gets up in the wilds of Colorado, and he's captured six days later. He is a flight risk. He just proved it, and he was recaptured. Yep. Well, they transferred him. He had to be transferred anyway after a period of time to the jail in um uh, in uh, the Garford, the Garfield County Jail, and it's a one-story jail. And I've spoken to one of the guys who was involved with probation and parole there, and he used to say we'd hear Bundy coming down the hall. He'd be jangling. Uh, he he was in chains, but um, but they would take those chains off at night. And so here's what the prisoner said one day: they put Bundy, an accused murderer, think of this, in a cell with a light fixture that was loose. Now they say it was due to be welded, but you can get a welding job set up in a couple of days and just have, I just, I don't, honestly, I don't think they were going to fool with it, but they said it was due to be welded. I don't believe it, but that's what they said. So Bundy widens that a little bit. And here's what the prisoners tell the jailers. We can hear Bundy going up into the duct area, like in the rafters, but in the duct work, we hear him going up and he's crawling around above us at night. And then he's letting himself back down in the apartment. Well, of course, what's he doing? He's looking for avenues of escape. Exactly. And this happened on several occasions. And they told the jailers, did did the jailers did anything about it? No, no, No. they never did a thing about it. And if you look at the quality of the jailers, if you'll see this, um, this uh, news guy interviewing Bundy in 77 uh, in it could have been in Garfield County Jail, uh, mm-hmm. you know where he ultimately escaped from. But these people, these jailers, the the newspapers called these people the Keystone Cops. Yep, because they were they were so bad. And um, these jailers, uh, if you look at there's one standing behind Bundy when this guy is interviewing him, and he's an old man. Bundy could have easily overpowered him given the right circumstances. So their jail staff was atrocious. And as I say, that uh, a, a number of these people lost their jobs, but their lack of securing Ted Bundy meant two women and a 12-year-old child was going to die in Florida. Yep. There's no excuse for this. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, they didn't do their job. That's the only reason why people died in Florida is because the jail system in Colorado did not do their job. They just wouldn't do it. And th- this is a real insight into humanity how stupid people can be sometimes. And in this case, you've got somebody that's an accused murderer and they're acting like, you know, he wrote a bad check. This is not, this isn't, this was not what the case was. And it's hard. If you, if I was writing fiction, it would be hard to write something where he escaped twice out of the same state. You know, Bundy, he just took advantage of all the things that all the lacks things that he saw around him, the lacks in people's thinking. And once he gains their trust, so he was a lot smarter than they were. And of course, when Mike Fisher found out about it, he was absolutely livid, not just the first time, but the second time. And after a few days, yeah. And after a few days, Fisher said, well, they're not going to catch him. He's, he's no doubt gone and we'll have to wait for the next murders to occur. And of course that's what happened. 
It's yeah, it's ridiculous that people uh-huh. die because of just ineptitude. And that's true. That's true. You got to watch out for dumb people because they'll do dumb things, and sometimes it'll cost people, you know, you know, their lives. Um, I was wondering, in terms of his um, biological parenthood, I spoke to uh-huh. author, my, uh, she's a journalist, Myra McPherson, and an author. She wrote an article mm-hmm. in Vanity Fair called The Roots of Evil, where she interviewed uh-huh. Dr. Lewis. Uh-huh. And in there, several of his relatives think, oh, yeah, maybe his grandfather could have been his father, which if in the insular family, there was that mm-hmm. confluence that maybe his grandfather could be his biological dad. Like, did you yeah. unearth any anything to confirm that or deny it? Well, I know somebody that has interviewed. She's passed away now, but his aunt Audie. Um, mm-hmm. And she she doesn't buy into any of that. So he got that directly from the aunt. Okay. And I think Sam Cal with even with his problems gets a bad rap but here's the glorious thing i have a friend who knows liz kendall and and he was able to uh obtain uh bundy's dna that he paid for oh uh and 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 ran a cross on that it was gotten off of a postage stamp that bundy had mailed to her and they were able to extract it and sam cowell is not his father that's okay. already been proven. And he knows Dr. This friend of mine knows Dr. Lewis and informed her about it because she was a big believer in that. And a lot of people were, I never did buy into that. Now it's incest okay. happens, obviously. So yeah, it could have yeah. it could have been true, but I, I never found anything to substantiate it. Every time I would investigate that, and I did it when I was writing the Bundy Murders, yeah. I never came across anything other than rumor to okay. lead me yeah. to believe. And so I just, I, of course, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned that or not. I do mention some things where that he had done some things and, you know, but um, another thing, the pornography thing, even that people had said, well, he would peruse yeah. Sam Cow's pornography, but remember he moved away from there mm-hmm. with his mother to Tacoma or to Brown's point, which is like a suburb of Tacoma yeah. when, when Ted was a, about five. So like how much five, could yeah. he have been? Yeah. Well, how much could he have been looking at with women and understanding really what he's seen? So I'm not so sure about that. What was big for Bundy were the detective magazines. Yes. And I remember those I'm, I'm 66 I'm the age of a number of his victims. If Bundy were alive today, he'd be about 76, maybe 70. But I can't, he was born in, in 1946. So yeah, same age uh, as he, Trump. He, he, yeah, yeah. So, but he, he remember, I remember these magazines and these magazines, even as a kid growing up, they would have these covers, these large breasted women, they're either being attacked by a man who's either choking them with a rope or he has a knife to their throat or a gun. And I used to say to my friends and we'd see the women, we thought, well, that's kind of nice looking. But but why are these men doing these things to these women? That's weird. Yeah. That's weird. I mean, why would they put something like that on the cover? Well, Bundy and that's what was my reaction. Bundy loved those magazines. And people think that some yeah. of the things he did with victims he replicated what he saw on the covers of some of these magazines. And that's, that's, that's likely true because, because Bundy did tell Bill Hagmeyer, who was the FBI agent at the Mm -hmm. end. Of course, I got to interview Bill twice for the the book. Um, He said that he used those, the the big thing with him were those, 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 those detective magazines. And at some point what Bundy did, and really that's what, the large-breasted women on there and, and, and the voluptuous with half of their chest hanging out, yeah. that was to spark the sexuality aspect. But then these magazine people, and there was about six of them out there at one point, then they would have the violence with that. So Bundy picked up right, right on that. So as he was developing sexually, yeah, and of course, there was something wrong with him because you know, most people see that and they go, well, what's that violent thing about? But he gravitated towards that. And I don't think, I don't think the magazines caused that. I think he already had uh, like a chink in his armor. Um, As they would say, there's weakness in the arm. He had a chink in the armor. It was busted somewhere. And then when he got that stuff inside of him, it just kind of 
kind of took off where it wouldn't bother maybe you or me or somebody else. We'd see that and we'd go, well, that's disgusting. It's just like pornography. At the look, pornography does have a lot of the negatives. People, people, I've talked to people who have been addicted to it. Uh, it's hurt their marriages. They, 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 they want all this stuff that their wives won't do, or and they just and, and it, it, it can harm relationships. But here's something yeah. it doesn't do: pornography does not lead young boys and young men going into manhood into one or murder women and cut off their heads and have necrophilia, have sex with them after they're dead. It doesn't have that power. Mm. It doesn't have it. So Bundy wanted all that stuff. So where did that come from? It didn't come from the, from the detective magazines, although he loved them. It didn't come from the pornography, which were probably a lot of the time magazines, soft porn pornography, certainly not. You often wonder what to, in today's age, it's practically an epidemic. You can just get on the internet and see whatever you want. And so it's there. But back then, a lot of magazines, you know, you had to go to these, these little places downtown in the bed to see it. And um, so, but there had to be something else wrong with him. And so that's why I discuss in the Bundy murders, these, a couple odd events that the aunt saw. I don't know if it was Audie, the but it, it could have been, it, it could have been one of Louise's other sisters about the knives around the bed. He had a kind of dazed look on his face. And there was another one that talked about, they were standing on a platform taking a train back to wherever yes. and it was at dusk and she didn't go into it, but she said his personality changed and it frightened me. It bothered me. And so it, he started to morph into something. So whatever happened to Bundy, it already happened. Something was already wrong when he was a little boy. And it's really sad to think that because mm -hmm. whatever happened to him, he didn't want that to happen. But I'd say in the Bundy murders, there's a difference between a uh, a young person growing up, Bundy made the comment once to uh, somebody, to a writer, I think, maybe maybe Michelle, that he didn't know what it was like to be a friend. He just, you know, he had these two great friends, yeah. Warren Dodge and Terry Storwick, but and and they were really good friends. But he had trouble relating a lot of times inwardly. And I say there's one thing to be uh, like a mixed up youth, a kid having these problems, you can really feel sympathy for them. But the sympathy has got to end when they go from that to become a lethal predator of, mm -hmm. of women. But you can look back, and that's why I say in the Bundy murders, the first person to become a victim in this, this saga is Bundy himself. And everything normal, I say, had to have left him by the dawn of 74 when he began this killing. So it's a terrible thing, and... You know, it would have been nice if he could have gotten help, but psychopaths don't normally look for help. And then he got to the place where, I mean, Bundy was not a powerless pawn at some point because it just decided I'm not going to go this direction. But he spent so many years fantasizing about violence and women that at some point it is inevitable you're going to cross that barrier from fantasy to, to reality. And that's what he did. And by the time he did that, he didn't want to come back. I mean, he didn't want to. If you think about it, he had said goodbye to, he knew he was never going to be married. Not really. Yeah. No children. No, he's not going to come down home after and have a meal and watch TV with a fan. No. It's going to be solitary, his road, and predatory. He's just going to keep murdering because that's the one thing that was driving him in his life. Yeah. Unbelievable, really, when you think about it. But it is really scary just thinking about how something who knows what may have happened in his youth. Maybe it was, you know, mm -hmm. he was left in that home for unwed mothers for two months before his mom decided to go and get him. And who knows what kind of relationship they had that could have caused that something. The lack of bonding. Yeah, the lack of bonding. Yeah. You know, I yeah, I, I was I, I'd like to blow up another myth here, too. Um there were sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know how long that duration was. I know that's that's hammered a lot. I haven't checked. I, I didn't was that not able to locate the records there, but I don't have a problem with there being some disparity of time when she left him and went back. But here's the thing that um, a lot of people get wrong, even some writers. Okay. A lot of people think that Ted Bundy grew up, grew up thinking that 
Louise was his sister and his mm -hmm. grandparents were his parents. Well, whatever confusion there was to that, that was completely fixed before he left Philadelphia. Got it. Okay. Completely fixed. And what happened was she takes him out there uh, and she she changed his name to Nelson because she was going to be living with her uncle, mm -hmm. who was also Cal, and it didn't want people to think that was weird. So for her odd reason, she changed his name to Nelson. She meets Johnny Bundy. Johnny Bundy marries her, adopts him as his son. He knows Johnny is his adoptive father. He knows his mother is Louise. They have four other children. Yeah. So there's seven in the household. They refer to Bundy as their elder brother. The siblings do. Mm -hmm. Warren Dodge and Terry Storwick. He's Ted. There's his mother, Louise. There's his father, Johnny Bundy. I even heard a well-known writer say that maybe at the age of 15, he still didn't know. That's that's the most absurd thing that has ever been said about this myth. Yeah. He knew it early on. Whatever confusion was there, and believe me, it's easy for kids to get confused at three and four years old. That was fixed in Philadelphia. By the time he got out to Tacoma, I mean, Johnny Bundy was not going to adopt uh, you, you know, uh, him, if, if, if he would be the uncle of, of, mm -hmm. <laughs> of their other children. I mean, come on. He adopted, he became his adoptive son. Louise was the mom. Ted knew it. So that's another myth. And these, the funny thing about these myths, they get started. Listen, I cannot begin to tell you how many <laughs> women have said to me, it was mostly women. There have been a couple of men, but mostly women. They get it in their head that, that, well, I just know Sam Cowell was his father. I know it. I said, I would say, how do you know this? Yeah, I just how? know it. It's on the inside. I know it. Huh. Well, I'd like to be able to know things without facts, <laughs> but you can't know anything without facts. And so you can say, I suspect. Why do you suspect? You could say a gut feeling. But when people say they know, so that thing's been blown out of the water. Sam Cowell is not his father. Jack Worthington, people, of course, I named Jack Worthington in my book, The Bundy Murders, as the as the likely father, mm -hmm. a sailor from World War II. I've seen a picture of Worthington. He's got similar bone structure to Ted. I'm sure that's his dad. Can but you send in it the, to me? In, in, oh, I don't have it now. It was It's on a website. Okay. But if I can track it down, yes, I will. Oh, my gosh, but please. I'll tell you where you can probably, okay, I'll tell you where you can locate it. If you go to the um, site Crime Piper, there's a there's a, a lady named Erin Banks who runs this and writes on it. She did a great article on it. She shows a picture of um, uh, the other guy that they suspect, Lloyd Marshall. I think she has a picture of Marshall. And then she has Jack Worthington. To me, Jack Worthington has similar features of Bundy. Cool. But be that as it may, be that as it may, Jack Worthington is named as Bundy's father in the King County police records. Oh, now, where did that yeah. come from? No doubt from an interview with Louise, but it's not debated. It says father. Now it's not on the birth record. It, the name was left off, but they said at the King County police department in, in the archives, that's in the record. That's who the dad is. So you, somebody must've gone to Louise and said, who was his father? And, and said, no, that's okay. Jack Worthington. Okay. Yeah. So that's probably how, how that came about. So, but you can go to crime Piper and it's Aaron yeah. Banks. And then uh, you can, um, you, you, you can find that article. Yeah. Thank you. And I know that from Louise's account, she claims she became pregnant her towards her senior year of high school, like towards the end, like June, okay. May. Mm -hmm. But then if Bundy was born in mm -hmm. November, I don't think there are any records of uh -huh. him being premature, but that's not a full nine months of having a child. So her yeah, I don't know exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, somebody might've uh, written that. Okay. I don't know if that, if that's exact. I just, in my book, I don't, go, whenever I have run into like a little dead mm -hmm. end like that, I'll just kind of leave, leave it open. And the only facts that we know is she did become pregnant. Got it. But by this Jack Worthington, at least that's what people believe. Okay. And that, and that Ted was born. Uh, in November of 1946. So I don't know. So I, I, I've never, 
found anything in the record. And it may, it may be there, but I don't think he was premature. Um, you know, you get up, you, you get anything past around 37 yeah. weeks. And I mean, with a bun in the oven, it can come out <laughs> any time. But, <laughs> but a, 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 anything really premature would be quite noticeable. But he was born normal. Yeah, healthy. It, there were no outward observations. Yeah, he was real yeah. healthy. And uh, certainly nothing there uh, to point to what he would become. So scary. Every now and then when you're out in public, do you like look around and wonder, like, are any of you guys yeah. crazy serial killers? I, I wonder that often public space. Yeah. I mean, well, you usually I talked to I interviewed five of Monday's close friends uh, from Washington State who used to go do campaigns with him. I mean, some of them were real close and others were, I mean, they knew him well enough. They were, they would drink together yeah. and they would talk. They lived in the same house, and, uh, boarding house, and rooming house in Seattle. And I remember one fellow said to me, he said, you know, after this came out, we all had to reevaluate what we believed about our friends. Yeah. And it was just a shocker. And here's the thing. I, I tell people they shouldn't get upset about this. I've talked to people uh, where everybody lived and i've talked to people in utah that two places where he really put down roots of course is in uh you know washington state seattle and then of course salt lake city utah and you'll find people in both they knew ted it couldn't be him because we know this guy and he's not like Mm -hmm. that well that's the outer shell of a psychopath and ted bundy was a homicidal psychopath but he never portrayed himself like that that's why the friends the family members louise herself and johnny bundy didn't believe it till ted finally admitted it and they just couldn't bring themselves to believe it and that's not unusual and people shouldn't uh blame themselves for not being able to believe it because and i talk about this in the bundy murders what they're believing what they saw was the facade and yeah. and Bundy himself told told his mother at the end, there were a lot of things hidden from you, and I, you know I'm really sorry about all this. He said, but I'm trying to make it right, and uh, it was hidden from her. And of course, obviously, you look around with other people, chances are, I mean, a, a crazy person we can record, we, we can actually recognize that they do crazy things, but a psychopath, they are not mentally ill. They are just different from us. And they, there's a lot of psychopaths out there who have no problem cheating people out of mm-hmm. money and people in car sales do very well who are sociopaths. Um, they, they don't mind defrauding people, but a lot of psychopaths or sociopaths, they, they won't murder people. But when you get a homicidal psychopath, you know, and that's the worst kind of one, then you have to wonder and then these people are absolute masters of hiding behind the mask of a normal person and when it comes out that there's somebody that are that's absolutely abnormal it's like the normal person's mind wants to short circuit and it's the place where they just can't they just can't figure out the outer bundy and the inward bundy and how there can be such a such a great difference in the two and Bundy's friends said, you know, it was by degrees that we all came to the knowledge, you know, somebody else would be convinced over here and then maybe a friend they weren't as convinced and something else would have it done. So it's just got to be him. And and then you would roll it all the way back to the actual family members. You know, Linda Bundy wrote uh, the judge in Utah when the pre-sentence investigation was going on, please. Don't send my brother like to prison. He wouldn't have done these. I know my brother. I know him. He wouldn't do these things. But they didn't. She didn't know her brother. Not at all. (laughs) She knew the facade. Mm -hmm. That's all she knew. And so that's that's the real that's the real kicker for these situations. And then, uh, like I say, families are usually the last to believe it. And until they hear it from the mouth of their child or their brother or their uncle or their father, they just. They just don't want to believe it. And I can understand that. Yeah. Kind of like the Golden State Killer. He had his sentencing last year and the survivors, Mm -hmm. they got up there and gave their impact statements. And then his family members got up and were like, please be lenient. And Mm. I, I was torn between being like, don't be lenient. This piece of shit was horrible. Yeah. Like still today. Yeah. Um, And then feeling for those family members who still just, it's so new to them that since when he was caught to coming to terms with what 
their brother, father, whomever did. Like, yeah, I feel bad for the family members, but not yeah. that, no. that dude. No, no, no. There was a lady that became a Christian in prison. You hear about these jailhouse conversions, and, yeah. and yeah. you know, most of them, most of them, are, most of them are fake. But yeah, son of Sam, and blah blah blah. Yeah. Oh my God. I told one person, I, and actually, I, I'm an ordained Christian minister, and I, oh, yeah. I was ordained in 19. 19- I, I, yeah, I am. And, and I write you crime. So what's wrong with me? Right. But but I'm ordained and I still perform the ministry uh, even to this day. But I was ordained in 1984. But so I kind of got my feet in both worlds. But I had a girl tell me once she said, no, no, no. Son of Sam is a Christian now. I said, do you really do you really believe that? She said, yes, I do. I said, well, let's, let me explain something to you. Those desires that he had to murder people and slaughter women and young men and in their cars and shoot them in the head that hadn't gone anywhere nope you're only getting what he wants you to see and she actually got irritated got mad at me for saying it i said what? well you just you're just gonna have to understand this stuff that became these people became this way not going anywhere but there was a woman in texas what is her name Faye something she became a born-again christian and i do believe her conversion was valid i do believe it and she became a totally different person in prison. Wow. But I was hoping that the governor of Texas was not going to give her a reprieve because of that. And I th- my feeling is this. If you know the Lord now, great. Go ahead and accept the responsibility of these murders and go on home. And so he didn't. And boy, if he would have done that based on that, it would have opened a Pandora's box of these killers in Texas. Well, you did it for her. You need to do it for me. I'm a believer mm-hmm. in Jesus now, but so you can't do that. So if they get born again, great. And if they go home through execution, if I had a kid who turned out to be, I don't understand these families that protect their family members. If I had a yeah. kid who went out and murdered people like this, I would still love them because they're my kid. But if they were sentenced to death, I'd say, listen, you're just going to have to deal with this. Get your life right. Repent, get your life right and go home to be with the Lord. But, you don't deserve to get off of this. You don't. I fully guess that's the way I am. Oh, I, I agree with that sentiment as well, that if you uh-huh. you made the choice, it's a choice. It's not like yeah. a Richard Chase situation where you're like schizophrenic and like really not there. Although I still don't know a lot of facts about him, but it seemed like, didn't he think he his blood was like thinning, so he needed to go and he, you know what I'm talking no, about? No, that? I, no actually, actually. You have a book on him, no? I do have a not 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 the guy in, in Chicago, Chicago that okay. killed those nurses, but I do. Yeah. On Richard Chase. Yeah. Yeah. And Richard Chase. Well, here's the thing. I had a great conversation with the uh, with the prosecuting attorney a number of times before I went out there and I had to go out there and go through 14 boxes of material at the uh, attor- uh, the county attorney's office in Sacramento back in 2012. And, um, you know, spent a day there and then they shipped the stuff to me later. He said, I said, listen, without question, Chase was mentally ill. He said he was mentally ill, but he isn't, but he wasn't crazy. Mm. And he explained the difference. And here's, and it's true. Okay. This is absolutely true. Uh, A crazy, we, we had a guy here in Louisville who killed his mother and brother and he was absolutely crazy. Here's what he did. They were dead. He had to do something with them. So he pulled them out to the trash cans in the front of the street. It was in a uh, little uh, city that is uh, like right outside of Louisville. It's all one metropolitan area. It's called St. Matthews. It's a nice, nice little city. It's really part of Louisville. And he pulled them out to the trash thing and they had blood on them where he'd murder them. He laid them by the trash can so the trash people could pick them up. Some people walk in their dog that morning. They walk in their dog that morning and they're walking down and they, wait a minute, at the, doesn't look right. That doesn't. What? They thought it was. They thought. They thought it was maybe. Maybe it was like. Um, you know what? Like a um, what's the thing? A mannequin with ketchup man- on it. It's never. A they called the police. The no patrolman rolled up. Got out. He recognized them as corpses immediately. Well, this this guy is absolutely crazy. Yeah. He did okay. not try to conceal anything. But here's Got what it. Richard Chase did. Richard Chase. Richard Chase did everything he could to conceal his murders. I he see. understood fully. Yeah. That if this happened, he was going to be uh, uh, prosecuted and he could lose his life. He, he could be executed. And so. 
Yeah, he admitted, of course, he's he was he's schizophrenic and deeply mentally ill. Here's something else that most people don't know. Chase got better before the murders mm. because of the drugs they were giving him. But his mother said, they're making you too doped up. I want you off the drugs. And his mother had her own mental problems. So he drifted into these unbelievably great, uh, just horrible, diabolical murders and where he, you know, destroyed one woman and then a, a family of, of people. Oh, it was just a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. The most ghastly things he did. Yeah. But he still tracked. And he listened to this. He even did this. On the one family where he killed um, uh, this one woman and uh, her son and her male friend that was over there. And also the baby that she was watching. He not only shot and killed the baby. He took the baby home. And later they found out that he had been in his home, been eating the baby's brains. What the fuck? And they found the remainder of his brains like on a plate in the refrigerator. Now, that's it. I don't mean to gross people out, but this is how me, me, I, I would we would call him crazy, obviously. But in a legal sense of crazy, yeah. he tried to conceal. He knew what he was doing. So that's why he got the uh, death penalty. But of course, he, uh, as the prosecutor told me, he was cheeking his meds and putting them in the side and act like he's taking a drink. And yeah. he saved them all up. And I said to the prosecutor, and of course, he took them all at once and killed himself. And I asked the prosecutor about that. And I said, do you think he meant to kill himself? He said, chances are. He was so thinking that his blood was drying up, the mm. aortic valve was missing, or the this thing was wrong, that was wrong. He probably wanted to take everything at once to really finally cure him. And mm. of course, ultimately, and I say this tongue in cheek, he did. <laughs> yeah. Because in, in killing himself, he cured it all. So that was Ooh. Richard Chase for you. But yes, I did write a book on him. Yes. Oh my God. So crazy. Um, so back uh, yeah, to yeah. back to Bundy. Uh -huh. He wanted to be governor of Washington, which can you imagine? Uh, he talked you, about it. Yeah. Do you think that he would have still acted on his like a violent fantasies if he were to be elected into office? Or do you think being in that sort of public spotlight would have been enough of a barrier? Or do you think he would have just been like really good at hiding it? No, I think what he I think what Bundy was going to do, I think at one time when like he entered law school, um, there was a part of him that would have liked to have at, at this time gone out and murdered. He hadn't, I think there was a portion in his life where he hadn't completely, like when he met Liz Kendall in 1969, mm -hmm. he may have already committed a murder by then. Mm -hmm. We know he killed in 72 and 73, but his 1974 launch into full-time murder was different. Yeah. When he did that, he was going to go into murder knowing he was never going to come back. All exit ramps were closed. He had no desire to get off that road. Now, of course, by that time he knew, but before then, I think there were, there were thoughts and momentary desires that he could become a lawyer. He could go into politics. These things could be, but at the same time, the more he fantasized and the more he did things, it's like he said once he saw a girl either walking down the street or not or riding a bike he said i had to have her i just had to have her and so he had these desires really springing up he was fueling his fantasies with all this thinking that he was doing about it and i i think when he would commit maybe his first couple of murders before maybe 74 he might have tried to swear off i want to just be an attorney i want to do this yeah. But by the time 1974 hit, no, it was, in fact, if you look at his political career, and I cover this in the Bundy murders, he, yeah. you know, he was absent here. There was a lady, uh, the second uh, delegate, Helen West, had to take his place at a caucus or something or a conference because he wasn't there. So he was letting things drift away. And mm. when he did so, by that time, when he entered into 1974 and he started killing like this, he knew everything was going to have to go away, that he was going to be on this predatory road and he was never going to get off of it. And that's what he did. But yeah. could it mm -hmm. have been possible in 73, 72? I think by 73, he probably was might have had a thought that it wouldn't have to go that way, even though he'd, he'd murdered before. He could stop it. 
but you go on back to like 69 with Liz when he first met her. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it it, it might have been. But even back then, he had things going on with him. When he went back east in 69, he 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 knew he was starting to become a predator. And he was the, you know, he wasn't he wasn't an expert at it yet. He was still an amateur, but he had those desires. But even so, were those thoughts in his head that maybe he wouldn't go that way? Yeah, I think after he met Liz, Liz, they were there for a while. But then at some point, they really did drift away, and no one knows exactly when. But you see and can confirm that they did by yeah. his actions of 1974. And even, even Liz said things started to change between them. Yeah. In 74, his sexual desires began to change when she didn't want to go down that road, that, that road with uh, anal sex and tying Bondage her up. And, I mean, yeah. yeah. And one, one time she uh, he was choking her and he was gone. Yeah. And she said she she had a hard time bringing him back. And then, of course, he saw what he was doing. and He stopped. And what she didn't realize is that killer had risen up and he was like in another realm there. And by, by that time, you know, and so he was just about gone to where he could never pull it back. And uh, again, that was 1974. And that's when he used what I call in the book, the dawn of 74, where he attacked that one w- woman, um, uh, Kathy Sparks. Uh, yeah. I, I gave her a, a pseudonym in my book, but that was on January 4th. He thought he, yeah, he thought he, Killed her, left her for dead, um, didn't take her. She didn't die. She spent 30 days in the hospital, was in a coma for 10. Yeah, yeah. she did. Thank God she didn't. But, you know, but she still suffered from things uh, all these years. But but she lived. And um, his next victim, he wasn't going to make that mistake again. He went yeah. uh, Linda Ann Healy. Yeah. Uh, the early morning hours of, of February 1st. Her last mm-hmm. night was January 31st, went to the uh, Dante's with friends, came back. Bundy was already, I'm sure, watching her in the house. Might have been a Dante's. And, yeah. But I say in the book, either, either he came from either Dante's or from another direction. But he went into that house and got her. And instead of doing what he did to Sparks, uh, he took her out and took her with him. The boldest abduction I've yeah. ever read. I don't, I don't expect to read of another abduction more bizarre than the abduction of Linda Ann Healy. Kathy Parks, he abducted her in Oregon and then drove her mm-hmm. five hours alive back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, not he, even, like yeah. she's fully conscious in the back of the car. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One, one, one guy who, who, who wrote a book suggested that maybe Bundy cut her head off and took her. No, Bundy made it nope. very clear he didn't do that. He took her back alive. Yep. And she, he transported her alive. And later, Bundy would say that one of the reasons why he did that was to throw off the cops in Seattle. Um, but I've driven there. And of course, I've been down to, to, to Oregon State you know, University in that very spot where, uh, where uh, she talked to Lorraine Fargo, which I write about that in the book, The yeah. Bundy Murders. I, I'm, and I make a couple, uh, I say a couple things in The Bundy Murders that I couldn't prove, but I, I felt like it was true. And it turned out being true because Lorraine Fargo contacted me a year later uh, and she confirmed a couple things for me. But but um, but yeah. And so he, he's got this five hour drive and he gets her and he gets her a little. It convinces her to go with him into his car and takes her. He's, he told Michelle in the third person, whoever did this, like mm-hmm. did this. And, mm-hmm. and uh, he went, you know, and then had to pick up a, a, a not a dissertation, but something uh, somebody was doing with it. And as soon as he got her beyond where there were eyes and ears, he stopped and sexually assaulted her and took control of her boundary. Can you imagine how horrific that was for her to be conscious and he drove her all the way back? Five and hours. I, I see, I see, yeah, I see in the, 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 uh, the Enigma of Ted Bundy. Uh, I can't remember. I don't have the book in front of me, but it's like um, sunrise was like a, like you know five forty five or something a.m. and um, he had to get back there and do what he was ever going to do and murder her mm-hmm. uh, and then dispose of her before it was completely daylight. So he had a long. That was a long day for Bundy. Five hours down. Five and we, my wife and I drove just like he did from Seattle Jeez. all the way down there. And then he had come back and it's a long, long drive. So, yeah, he just went out of his way to make it a little bit different. 
Yeah, apparently. <laughs> pew, 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 pew. Alrighty, that is the end of part one with my interview with author Kevin Sullivan. If you would like to hear part two, please head over to the Patreon because that is the only place part two will be available next week. We're jumping right back into the regular feed, continuing off uh, with Ted Bundy getting arrested, which is just glorious. Um, it gets even more unhinged because, <laughs> because he's literally a psychopath, like an actual psychopath. And the things that he tries to do and tell police to cover his stupid ass tracks are just, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So please head over to the Patreon if you would like to listen to part two and or just to support me. Also, I'm getting into adding some bonus content on there. So if you want some more stories not Ted Bundy related, Patreon. If you have any questions, you can shoot me an email, truecrimeaficionados at gmail.com. Head over to the Instagram where there are lots of funny memes and videos and clips. And there's like a video of Mimi stalking the shit out of me. It's actually kind of scary. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that jazz. And I will link Kevin's book that I used, The Bundy Murders, in the description, along with all of my sources and where you can find Kevin. Thank you so much. And again, keep your head on the swivel. Bye.